came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday, the 1st of March. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today, our feature interview is with Dr. Emily Petroff, who is based at Dwingaloo in the Netherlands and is hunting fast radio bursts. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. But first we go to the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne to speak with Emily. Well, hello, Emily. Hello, Brendan. Today we are in Melbourne, Australia, at the FRB 2018 conference, speaking with Dr Emily Petrov, who is a postdoc researcher at the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy in Dwingaloo. Yesterday she presented her session here on a bright low dispersion measure FRB. Before we get into FRBs, Emily, can you tell us where did you grow up and how did you get interested in science and space in the first place? Sure. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the United States. So that's on the West Coast, an easy 15-hour flight from Australia. I've been interested in space for a really long time. I think probably I wanted to be an astronaut starting when I was like eight or nine. And then maybe when I was 10 years old, after a very brief flirtation with, with being an astronaut and going into space, I saw the movie Apollo 13. And then I decided I wanted to be an astronomer instead of an astronaut. And I've been a space geek ever since then with, you know, getting my parents to get me telescopes and going out into the middle of nowhere to look at the night sky. Fantastic. So a very early interest in space and astronomy. And were there dark skies there in Oregon? Yes, yes, there were. So in Portland, not so much. It's a big city. The sky pollution is the same as everywhere. and It's quite cloudy. But Oregon has a nice central mountain range. On the eastern side of the mountains, it's high desert, so there's nothing but clear skies at night. So I made my parents take me camping out there so that I could learn the constellations and look at the stars. Fantastic. And that change in ambitions there, Apollo 13 was a bit scary. Yes, uh, a lot can go wrong when you go to space. Most of the time it goes very well because the people who launch things into space are very smart. But from an early age, I realized that maybe it was safer to just stay on the ground. (laughs) Very good. Well, we know that things go wrong in radio astronomy as well, but maybe we'll get onto that a bit later. (laughs) So after some good basic science in high school, you went on to university at Carleton College in Minnesota for your first physics degree, which is quite away from Oregon. 
Tell us about that move. Yeah, so in the U.S. system, it's not too unusual to move away for uni. In the U.S. system, it's quite normal, actually, to move cross-country or find a university that you find matches you a little bit better. And so I chose to leave Portland and go to Carleton College in Minnesota, which is a small liberal arts college. There's not quite an analog in Australia, but it's a purely undergraduate institution with, I think, about 2,000 undergraduates in total, so quite small. And while I was there, I got the chance to study not just physics and astronomy, but also things like linguistics, and I learned some German, and, and you know, just kind of dabble in a, in a few other things while pursuing a degree in physics, which Carleton was well-known, their physics department was well-known for being an excellent one. Getting yourself on the learning curve. So then you came out and you did a semester in advanced physics at the University of Sydney. That must have been a huge move. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when I was doing my undergraduate at Carleton, part of the reason I loved it so much was because there was the opportunity to do research during the summers as an undergraduate. And so the summer after my first year at uni, I met up with an astronomer who worked at Carleton who was interested in having me work in his research group during the summer. And he, in particular, had a very interesting project on pulsars. But the other interesting thing about his group is that he had a very strong connection with astronomers who worked in Sydney at the Australia Telescope National Facility. So during my summer with Joel Weisberg, my professor at Carleton, we did six weeks at Carleton in the summer and then four weeks in Sydney working with a couple of people at the ATNS. And so I got hooked. I loved Australia. I loved Sydney. And so as part of that, I looked into how I could actually move here and do a bit of research in Australia. So I, I ended up moving to the University of Sydney for six months to pursue some extra physics courses and embed myself in the Australian astronomy community. Fantastic. And then you went down to one of Australia's top research institutions, the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing, here at Swinburne in Melbourne where you were awarded your 2015 PhD in astrophysics and where you used radio data from a parks dish and worked with a team to put Astrophysics Centre stage on international media. Your paper in monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society has been widely read. Tell us about peritons. Peritons. Peritons and why their discovery, though, was somewhat misleading it had some impact. Yeah, absolutely. So my PhD at Swinburne was focused on these things called fast radio bursts, which we're about to talk about. But fast radio bursts were this huge mystery, and it wasn't clear where they were coming from. But at the same time, kind of muddying the waters was this other type of object that we found called peritons. And we knew they were coming from somewhere near the telescope, whereas we think FRBs are coming from very far away. But we weren't sure what they were. And so Part of this work on peritons was try to trace them back to whatever location local to the telescope might be causing them. And it actually turned out that they were coming from microwave ovens on the telescope site, which was, although a bit of a letdown, we were happy that we solved it. We knew where the peritons were coming from, and then we could refocus our attention to these fast radio bursts. Fantastic. So now we move on to the big ticket item that we're all here for, fast radio bursts or FRBs. What are FRBs? And tell us about the first discovery of FRBs, the Lorimer burst. That's right. Yeah, so if you know what fast radio bursts are, then you're doing better than most of us. <laughs> um, we still don't know. We see them with our radio telescopes and what they are 
observationally how we define them is a very bright, very short burst of radio waves. So we see them booming in more brightly than many other things that we see with the telescope. And what I mean by fast is they last only about a millisecond. So really, really short, very energetic pulses. And we've never seen things this energetic before with our telescopes. And we think that they might be coming from other galaxies, maybe some sort of cataclysmic or or very energetic phenomenon in these other galaxies. So the whole story started in 2007 with this astronomer called Dunk Lorimer, and he was looking through some old parks data, and he found this very first boomingly bright short radio pulse, which was then called the Lorimer burst. And so that was the first discovery of fast radio bursts, or FRBs, but since then we've made enormous progress towards trying to find out exactly what they are. Thanks, Emily. So since that first discovery, many instruments have been used to hunt down FRBs and over 30 have been identified, including a repeating FRB. Are we looking at two different phenomena here, one for one-offs and one for repeating? It's a very active area of discussion. In fact, just today at this conference, we were talking about whether we can say that there are two different types of FRBs. The answer is that we don't know yet. For the majority of them, as you said, 30 plus, we've only seen one bright pulse ever. And we've spent lots of time looking at the locations where they've come from, and we've not seen anything else. But for one in particular, not only has it repeated, it's repeated tons of times. We've seen lots of pulses from just this one source. So it's very confusing how it fits in with the other ones. It's really not clear to us if it's just a particularly active one. It's a completely different kind of thing, or there's some sort of spectrum of activity that represents whatever phenomenon in the universe it is that produces FRBs. We're still not sure. (laughs) I sense that you scientists just love a mystery. Okay, in 2017, finding the physical counterpart of gravitational waves was a huge scientific breakthrough for the astronomical community, involving thousands of researchers worldwide. Are we hunting for the physical counterpart of FRBs? We're certainly trying. So the breakthrough with gravitational waves was that if you find it with the gravitational wave, you don't know exactly where it came from, you have a rough position on the sky. But if you can find emission related to the gravitational wave at another frequency, maybe with a gamma ray burst or with an optical counterpart or something, then you can pinpoint exactly where it came from. And it tells you so much about the event itself. With fast radio bursts, we're having a hard time doing that. We know roughly on the sky where the radio pulse came from, but our localization is quite poor with our telescopes. So at the moment, we're trying to do things like we find an FRB and we get other telescopes to look there as fast as possible to see if we see an afterglow or something like that. But because our localization is not very good, we haven't been successful yet. But we're trying. We're definitely trying. Okay. I know your research isn't just FRBs, but... What are your thoughts on the origins of FRBs? What's your best bet at this stage? There are so many theories out there for what FRBs are. In fact, the joke in the community at the moment is that there are more theories than there are bursts. (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone has a pet theory, and we're all trying to figure out exactly what these things are. But that, that shows you that it's a really healthy field. People are really putting their minds to it and really thinking about where these could be coming from. So a lot of the theories involve neutron stars, these dense, very energetic stars left over after a supernova. 
but these neutron stars in other galaxies. So some incredibly energetic neutron star, something that we don't have in our own galaxy that seems to just be hyperactive or incredibly intense in some way. So I'm not exactly sure whether it will end up being that it's just one population related to a certain type of activity on a neutron star, or maybe what we're seeing is some of them are maybe neutron stars colliding with each other or a neutron star collapsing to a black hole, and then others are these the repeating ones or these really energetic neutron stars. I'm not sold on any one theory just yet. I'm keeping my options open. So right now, we're at a fabulous FRB conference, FRB 2018, here at Swinburne. And I understand that sometimes research is embargoed and you can't talk about it prior to publication in some journals. But can you tell us about your presentation at this international conference and what outcomes do you hope will emerge from this conference? Yeah, so this conference has been wonderful for the FRB community. We're talking about so many very cool things that will be coming out very soon. My particular talk focused on a particular FRB detection that hasn't been published yet, so I can't tell you all the juicy details, but just to say that it will be coming out very soon and that we think that this particular FRB is interesting, partially because of what it looks like, but also because of where we think it may have come from. So these are the types of questions we're trying to answer for lots of FRBs. So one in particular is my focus, but at the moment we're hearing juicy results from all types of new facilities that are really promising to find lots of FRBs in the next few years as they come online and they start really sensitive searches. So I think that's the biggest takeaway from this meeting is that there's lots of cool results that have happened, but we're on the cusp of a real breakthrough in the field, finding loads of FRBs with loads of different telescopes. Now, you're a huge advocate for astronomy outreach, and you've done some wonderful work in this area. Why is outreach so important to you and other scientists? I believe firmly that, I mean, the science that we're doing isn't just for us. I find it extremely fascinating. I could spend all day, every day, just thinking about astronomy and doing astronomy and, you know, burrowing down into my data. But it's really important to tell people why we do it, what interesting things we find. I think, particularly with fast radio bursts, it's this huge opportunity to connect people with astronomy and then with physics because it's a mystery. And mysteries are fun. We're having fun. We're having fun at this conference talking about this mystery. And I think the public can have a lot of fun with it as well. And on top of that, I think it's really important to tell people what kind of astronomers are out there. It's not just a stuffy room. It's not just, you know, an old community. There's lots of young people involved. There's lots of women involved. There's lots of people that you may not stereotypically think of as astronomers. And I think it's really important that we communicate that message that even if you don't think you look like a stereotypical astronomer, you can still be an astronomer and you can still do this stuff. And it's it's fun. Everyone should be having fun doing it. Yay. (laughs) Finally, you're now at Dwingaloo, which some might mistake for an outback town near the Murchison Widefield Array, but actually you're in the Netherlands. Tell us about your work and your research on instrumentation and FRBs and pulsars, all the work you're doing over there at Dwingaloo. Yeah, absolutely. So after I finished my PhD at Swinburne, I took up a postdoctoral position at Astron, and Astron is the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy. So Astron manages, maintains, and uses the radio astronomy facilities in the Netherlands. 
So we have engineers that are in charge of helping to build the telescopes and, and maintain them. We have a radio observatory that's in charge of managing observations and liaising with astronomers. And then we have the astronomers at Astron who actually use the telescopes to extract the science, and I'm one of those. And I find Astron to be a really fun place because as an astronomer, sometimes you just use a telescope, you get your data, you go home. But at Astron, you really get to communicate with the engineers, with the people who really know the instrument, what it is that's happening and, and why it's happening. So if you're, if you're trying to debug, it's, it's very useful to have the engineers just down the hall. And what we're doing at Astron at the moment is that there's this 50-year-old array of telescopes called the Westerbork Array. And it's been highly successful in radio astronomy in the past, but it's definitely due for an upgrade. And that's what we're doing to it. We're putting new receivers on it. We're putting in all this new software and hardware. We're installing a supercomputer to crunch all the data. And our hope is that this telescope in its newly upgraded form is going to be excellent for finding fast radio bursts. It's going to be very sensitive. It's going to look over a large amount of sky. And we're going to use it, we hope, to find anywhere between one and maybe five fast radio bursts per week when it's up and running. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Emily. Now, the mic is all yours. And you have your opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, in equity or outreach, our quest for knowledge. So it's all yours. So I think my favourite rant at the moment is surrounding the public release of data and information from facilities. We're starting to learn more about fast radio bursts, but we still don't know very much. And at the moment, each burst that we find is very precious and very special to us because there's so few of them. But we're about to turn on all these telescopes that are going to find, well, we hope hundreds, perhaps even thousands of fast radio bursts in the next few years. And most of them should actually be able to find these bursts in real time. So basically, as they're happening or as the light hits the telescope. And so my hope and, and what I've been encouraging my own community to do is to think about the future and about the time when each FRB is no longer super precious and we want to start releasing our data and releasing our events publicly as soon as we know about them. So I've been developing systems so that we can trigger other telescopes in real time in a public way. So it's not just, I know you, you know me, I'll send you my events. It's, I have found this thing, anyone in the world can be involved. And I'm hoping that that's something that we'll be moving towards in the next few years. And my vision for the future is that in five years' time, we'll be having a fully global, fully real-time, fully inclusive hunt for these fast radio bursts. Fantastic. It sounds like you're describing something like Radio Galaxy Zoo that's been very successful for citizen scientists. sounds like you're describing something, a real-time bucket of data for scientists. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So while we should be crunching our own data to find the fast radio bursts that live in it, so unlike Radio Galaxy Zoo where we want citizens to find galaxies, we should be finding them already. But what we want to do is that as soon as we found it with our radio telescope, then we can tell the world about it and then other people can use their telescope of choice or maybe they can do their science with the information that we've provided in a very fast and transparent way. And we're not doing that at the moment, and I, I realize why. It's because it's such early days, but the community is moving so quickly. We've gone from just one to 30 FRBs in a decade. I expect that in just a few years' time, we'll be ready for something where we're sharing with the world. That is awesome. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Emily Petrov, FRB Hunter Extraordinaire. Thank you. <laughs> now we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up in the sky for the next two weeks. Hello, Ian. Hello there, Brendan. How's it all going? Great. Fantastic to be talking with you again, Ian, and happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much for birthday today. Starting off with breakfast with the family or brunch with the family, then going and seeing the Dinosaur Revolution exhibition at the South Australian Museum. For any South Australian listeners, it's an excellent exhibition. Please go and see it. Fantastic. So a dinosaur goes to the dinosaur exhibition. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and for those of you who are interested in dinosaurs, you've probably heard quite a bit about feathered dinosaurs recently. But did you know there were dinosaurs with quills? There were porcupine dinosaurs. I did not know this, and I was absolutely astounded to find this out. I had a marvellous time. It was wonderful. Fantastic, Ian. The connection between astronomy and paleontology is very strong, given what happened 65 million years ago. Yes, when uh, the asteroid and or comet slammed off the coast of what is now Yucatan and created the massive impact, which ended the reign of the dinosaurs. In fact, the reign of anything that was sort of larger than a medium-sized pony got wiped out. The asteroidal impacts had an enormous affect siding away entire families, species, things that have hung around for millions of years, longer than humans have been or even longer than mammals. And to this day, of course, we are now uh, watching the skies, looking for any potential impact that could end the reign of the mammals. Indeed, and now, what's up in the sky this week? There's lots of interesting things up in the sky this week. And one of our old friends is returning to the evening sky, talking about Venus. Venus is, the, of course, the almost the twin of Earth in terms of size and uh, mass, except for the hellish atmosphere, which is hot enough to melt lead. Yep. But Venus, as the evening and morning star, is one of the most recognisable planets in our skies. And so Venus has been too close to the sun for several months to be seen but now it's finally climbing above the horizon. For those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, it's still only barely above the horizons. But if you head out, you've got a flat level horizon like the ocean or something like that. And just about, you know, say from 20 minutes to about half an hour after the sun has set, you should be able to see Venus briefly before it disappears below the horizon. Fabulous. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, Venus is much higher it's still in the in the twilight, half an hour after sunset, but it's much easier to see. And for those of you who have keen eyes, there will be a bit of a treat. Uh, over the next few days, Mercury will be approaching Venus, and on the 4th of March, Mercury and Venus will be very close together. Uh, for those in the Northern Hemisphere, you'll probably still need binoculars to see Mercury uh, in the twilight, uh, but the sight of, of Venus and Mercury together will be quite pleasant. Very uh, good. And that's the planetary action in the sky. Our familiar constellations of um, 
uh, Taurus the Bull and Orion are marching steadily towards the horizon. And this week, the full moon is uh, grazing our skies on March the 2nd and then it starts waning. So for a while there, the constellations uh, will be uh, washed out by the moon. But what's also happening is our friends that have been lurking in the morning sky for the past uh, several months, Jupiter and Mars, are now turning up in the evening sky. Admittedly, this is going to be uh, fairly low on the horizon, and so not, not uh, entirely as exciting as the morning sky. But somewhere around about 11 o'clock local time, you'll see Jupiter climbing above the horizon, and by midnight, it will be recognisably bright above the horizon. Mars will be just be scraping over the horizon at midnight. As the uh, weeks go on, Mars and Jupiter will climb higher and higher into the late evening sky. So if you want to see them together and also see the beautiful constellation of uh, Scorpio entering the evening sky, you'll have to wait until you know, around about midnight to see them in a reasonable condition. If you want to do telescopic observation of uh, Mars and Jupiter, the best time, of course, is the early morning. Yep. If you are up in the recently early morning, we'll see the beautiful lineup of Jupiter, Mars and Saturn uh, strung out along the uh, length of Scorpius and Sagittarius. By themselves, the three planets lined up will be quite beautiful, but they're in some really nice territory. Now, I spoke before about how the moon is waning. So for the first uh, uh, week, uh, the bright moon will be appearing with uh, the um, constellations in the evening sky. But uh, after that, the moon starts to visit the bright um, planets in the morning. So on the 8th, Jupiter and the waning moon are close together. Last quarter is on the 9th. Uh, then on the 10th, it's Mars' turn to be close to um, the waning moon. And on the 11th, it's Saturn's turn. And in fact, the waning near crescent moon, Saturn, and Mars form a isosceles triangle in early morning. So this will all be rather beautiful. And in fact, the, on, on the 9th, the last quarter is not too far away from the bright star Antares. Listeners will know that Antares means the rival of Mars, the red star, looking very similar in colour. And, of course, if you've been following Mars and Antares uh, uh, in the previous weeks, you'll see Mars come close to this uh, red namesake star and then move away. Over the uh, coming weeks, Mars and Saturn will get closer and closer together. Watching them over the weeks as they come closer and closer together will be quite, quite nice. Now, you may remember from last week, I talked about how Mars was very close to some uh, globular clusters. Yep. But because of the brightness differential, the globular clusters are around about magnitude 9, well below the unaided eye visibility, which is, of course, um, um, magnitude 6. And whereas Mars is around about brighter than magnitude 1. This is a great time of year for insomniacs, Ian. There's some great things for people to look at who can't get to sleep at night, and there's also some great things for people who wake up early in the morning. There is indeed. This is a very good time to be an insomniac if you have clear skies. For those of you who are both early risers and have the advantage of binoculars, 
Mars is now moving past the very faint globular clusters and heading off towards an iconic series of nebula, the Lagoon and Trippet Nebula. Now, it will be in the heart of the nebula in a couple of weeks' time. Over the next two weeks, you can watch Mars get closer and closer, and by the 12th, uh, Mars will be in a binocular range of the Trippet and Lagoon Nebulas. Now, it's too far away to reasonably into a, a, into a telescope eyepiece, but even in binoculars you can enjoy this. And with a wide field camera imaging system, you should be able to capture Mars in the heart of this, uh, these iconic nebula quite easily. Tripoli and Lagoon Nebula are relatively bright and doesn't take much exposure to bring out both the bright stars and the hearts of these nebulas and the, uh, the gas around the nebulas themselves without uh, really overexposing Mars too much. So that would be a very fun thing. Uh, Saturn, however, uh, has been moving away from the Trippet and uh, Lagoon nebulas and getting close to the iconic uh, globular cluster M22. Again, it's within binocular distance of this globular cluster right now. Uh, and uh, by the end of the week, it should also fit into the field of view of a wide field telescope eyepiece. So it should look very nice. You should be able to see both the faint stars of the cluster as well as seeing at least the oval shape of Saturn in a wide field view. So that will be something very nice to look forward to if you have nice and clear skies. Fantastic. Now let's do a bit of Astronomy 101 here. We know it's very easy to see the satellites or the moons of Jupiter with a pair of binoculars. Why do we never hear about people seeing Phobos and Deimos when they look at Mars through their binoculars? A, Phobos and Deimos are too close to bright Mars, and B, they're incredibly, incredibly dim compared to the moons of Jupiter. The moons of Jupiter, if they were in the sky without Jupiter, two of them would be visible to the unaided eye themselves, wow. and the others would be, would be easily uh, binocular viewable. Uh, in fact, when Jupiter is opposition uh, later on uh, this year, there's a trick you can use to see the moons of Jupiter without uh, uh, Jupiter itself. And what you need to do is you need to be able to find a large object like a, a tree or a pole or a bit of building and place yourself so that at the time when the moons are the furthest from Jupiter, Place yourself so that the, the building blocks the light of Jupiter, and provided you know where to look, which can be a, you'll need an astronomy program to show you where where to look to see the uh, moons. You should be able to, in a dark sky site, pick up the brightest moons of Jupiter with your naked eye. It's going to be very close, so you know you'll just block out the light of Jupiter, and, and the moon will be very close to Jupiter, but you'll be able to do that at opposition when the moons are at their brightest, going to separate between the moons and Jupiter at their brightest. So I believe Callisto will be somewhere along the lines of magnitude 5, which should be easily visible to the unaided eye. That sounds like a great project, Ian. And you'd recommend Celestia or Stellarium to do that? I'd recommend uh, Celestia or Stellarium. I can... For something like that, I'll probably go for uh, Stellarium. Uh, um, Celestia is a bit of a, a bit, a bit, a bit of uh, overkill for this sort of thing. So go go for Stellarium. It's much easier to see where uh, the moons will be in relationship to Jupiter from your point of view of 
someone on Earth. With Celestia, you can still do it, but you have to write a script to orientate yourself properly with relationship to your position on Earth. Fantastic, Ian. I think we'll call that Ian's tangent for this week. We must get back into our tangents, Ian. Have you got? My my, my tangent was going to be related to what you were talking about: visibility of satellites. As you know, several months ago, the satellite Humanity Star was launched into the sky. Yep. And there was a lot of angst about Humanity Star and the uh, light pollution and putting things up in the sky, which had no uh, point. For those of you who don't know, Humanity Star, it's an art object which is a, a multi-sided, it's like a giant D&D dice yep. uh, reflector. And the idea is as it uh, rotates through space, you'll get little flashes of light uh, letting you know it's flying through the sky. It was actually inspired by the, uh, the flares from uh, the Iridium uh, solar panels. And so this is the idea of this thing to fly through space twinkling and it would catch people's eye and would draw their eyes to heaven. So whether you accept that as an appropriate reason for putting yet another glowing thing in the sky or not, that was the basic idea behind it. Now, how many people have seen Humanity Star? Uh, very few, I imagine. Uh, I'm having a hard time finding... I've found two people who have actually imaged it. I'm having a very hard time finding people who've seen it. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. For a lot of places, Humanity Star never really gets very high above the horizon. Yep. And when it's not flashing, it's quite dim. So picking it up can be very, very difficult. There were a lot of thoughts that you'd have these, people were imagining you'd have the Iridium flare-style flare occurring every couple of minutes as it zoomed across the sky, but it looks like it's it twinkles, but not very brightly at all. And so... I'm going to throw this as a challenge out to our listeners is to go to either Cal Sky or uh, Heavens Above and find your uh, predictions for Humanity Star and see if you can see it. It will be relatively difficult because when it's not flashing, the the satellite is quite dim. And so you'll have to more or less look in the general area where it's predicted to be and look very carefully looking for periodic flashes and from what I've seen it looks like it will flash about every 30 seconds or so as it goes over. Now from Australia there's some nice nice passes occurring starting tomorrow night where Humanity Star will be passing more or less directly overhead so there's a good chance actually seeing the satellite itself very dimly of course and seeing the flashes. And so the flashes may also the flashes may be uh, better the, the closer to twilight the pass is. So I'd like to hear from all your listeners to have a go, go out there and see if you can see it. Because with all, after all, all the grumpiness about holes oh, ruining our skies, it looks like it's no one's seeing it. It's, it's not ruining people's um, astrophotography. It's not generating it into people's uh, brains and it's definitely not uh, doing its job of drawing people's eyes to the sky. We go, so, look, you know, I can't see anything, go away. So let's have a, uh, an, uh, an astrophys project of everyone going and looking for Humanity Star. That sounds like a great project, Ian. Now, yeah. for 
those listeners who are interested in the controversy that happened about a month or two months ago about Humanity Stars, you might remember that we interviewed Dr. Alice Gorman, also from Adelaide, and she's written a very nice online article about how humans put artefacts in space and how we could view them as artefacts rather than things that interfere with our lives. And so she has put Elon Musk's Tesla vehicle and the Humanity Star in quite a nice context. So do a search for that. It's a great read. I could not agree more. I think it's an excellent read. And if nothing else, it will get you thinking about what it means to put these objects into orbit and what we're doing with them. So, yes, I heartily agree with that on a cold and rainy night or a cloudy night. You could do worse than reading that before going out and hopefully looking for a clear spot to look for a humanity star or an iridium flare. Indeed, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again. It has been a very, very great to, uh, to speak with you too. We've got so much coming up. We're going to have some really good sky talks in the very near future. We'll have not just the, the, the standard uh, observations, but we'll have some uh, quirky stuff. And I think we should keep an eye on uh, Jupiter's moons too and, and do a special on that. Okay, we will do a special on Jupiter's moons, Ian. That sounds fantastic. Now you go and eat some cake and have a fabulous night and a very happy birthday. Thank you. Actually, I'm not going to be eating cake. We're going to be eating jelly. <laughs> Andy has made birthday jelly for us. Fantastic, Ian. Thank you very much. Okay. Here is our news roundup. First up, from ABC Science by Janelle Rielia. Astronomers detect signal from the dawn of the universe using a simple antenna in the West Australian outback. A tiny signal dating back to the birth of the first stars in our universe has been detected by astronomers for the first time. They've picked up a radio signature produced just 180 million years after the Big Bang using a simple antenna in the West Australian outback. The groundbreaking discovery reported today in the journal Nature sheds light on a period of time known as the Cosmic Dawn when radiation from the first stars started to alter the primordial gas soup surrounding them. It could also completely revolutionise our understanding about dark matter, the invisible structure that makes up the bulk of our universe today. The signal confirms our expectations for when stars show up in the universe, said the study's lead author, Judd Bauman of Arizona State University. But it's also telling us that there's something mysterious happening at this time beyond our previous expectations, he said. It is thought the first stars were massive blue stars that lived fast and died young. Even though they emitted a lot of ultraviolet light, they are too faint for current telescopes such as the Hubble to directly observe. But astronomers proposed the stars could be indirectly detected by dips in cosmic background radiation, the afterglow of the Big Bang 
13.8 billion years ago. These dips, which produce a distinct radio signature, are caused by hydrogen gas absorbing the background radiation. Professor Bauman and colleagues have been hunting for a signal from the early universe for more than a decade through the EDGES project, short for Experiment to Detect the Global Epoch of Reionization Signature. It's challenging because the total amount of radio waves we receive on Earth from outer space is dominated by all the noise our galaxy makes. The signal they've been looking for is a minuscule fraction between 0.1 and 0.01% of the radio noise from the sky. It's like trying to hear a whisper from the other side of a roaring football stadium, Professor Bauman said. The signal is also within the lower range of FM radio, so finding a place on Earth that's free of human radio interference was essential. That's why Professor Bauman and colleagues decided to base their experiment at CSIRO's Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, 300 kilometres northeast of Geraldton. Going to Western Australia and working at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory was an absolutely critical first step for us, he said. There they built a small, table-sized radio spectrometer with a radio receiver attached to two metal panels that act as an antenna. Akin to a setup from the 60s or 70s, the EDGES instrument is much simpler in design than bigger array telescopes around the world. After years of complex calibrations to the detector, Professor Bowman and colleagues finally found what they were looking for. They detected a signal with a frequency of 78 megahertz, which was in the range predicted for a star formation by 180 million years. But, to their surprise, the signal was twice as strong as it should be. This indicated the hydrogen gas in the early universe was around minus 270 degrees C, much cooler than expected. Professor Bauman said there are two possible explanations for this. Either there were other unknown objects that were making more radio waves than expected, or there are interactions between dark matter and atoms of some other yet unknown type of physics that's making its mark in that error, he said, adding that the dark matter hypothesis is the most likely scenario. Separate research based on the signal, also published in Nature, supports the dark matter hypothesis. Renan Barkana of Tel Aviv University came to the conclusion that the extra cooling seen in the signal could only have been caused by the interaction of normal matter with something even colder. Back then, at the cosmic dawn, there were no stars, or they were only starting to form, so the gas in the early universe was very, very cold, Professor Bakana explained. The only candidate that we know of that can be even colder than this cold early gas is dark matter. We know that dark matter exists by its pull on galaxies, but we don't know anything about its properties or what it's made of. Professor Bakana said that if he is correct, 
his model points to new ways of detecting dark matter and exploring its mysterious properties. This would be the first clue of some interaction of the dark matter that is not just gravity, he said. In order for dark matter to collide with normal matter and take away some of the heat, it must also be a lighter particle than current models predict, he added. This is a hint. We need to look for dark matter in different parameter spaces to what people anticipated, he said. We observed something in a new range of physics. And now another bit of good news from digitaltrends.com by Mark Austin. The iconic Arecibo, I'd never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, someone will correct me. The iconic Arecibo radio telescope has been saved from possible demolition. If you've ever seen the movie GoldenEye, you're probably familiar with Arecibo, the massive structure opened in 1963 and the observatory's 1,000-foot radio telescope, which was the world's largest for more than 50 years. Built in a giant sinkhole in the Puerto Rican jungle, the 900-ton platform suspended 450 feet above a spherical reflector can detect radio waves from distant galaxies and also monitor nearby asteroids zooming past Earth. Originally designed to study the ionosphere, the telescope has had a variety of roles in its decades-long career. The military hoped to use it to track Soviet ICBMs during the Cold War, and in 1974, it sent out a postcard to a star cluster 21,000 light-years away as one of the first SETI endeavours. A study of binary pulsars using the telescope proved the existence of gravitational waves and earned physicists Russell Holtz and Joseph Taylor a Nobel Prize in 1993. In recent years, however, the future of Arecibo has been uncertain. The National Science Foundation, which funds the majority of Arecibo's annual $12 million budget, began looking at ways to decommission the structure due to budgetary constraints. Former director of the observatory, Robert Kerr, told National Geographic that environmental impact studies could signal the beginning of the end. It appears that NSF is following the formal process established in part by the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 for decommissioning of a federal facility, he said. The good folks at Arecibo are scared to death. However, the University of Central Florida has come to the rescue, announcing that it will be taking over operation and management of the facility, along with two international partners. UCF's oversight of this crucial resource further solidifies our university as a leader in space-related research, said UCF President John C. Hitt. This agreement, made possible through partnerships, also ensures that the observatory will continue to make significant contributions to space science and mankind. The five-year, $20 million agreement is expected to take effect on April 1. Good on you, Arecibo. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.